The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey, friends, and welcome to our program once again, Afternoons with Mike. We're heard daily across the Shepherd Radio Network. On the line with me today, a first-time guest, and in fact, I've got a couple of first-time guests. You'll hear a, a young man's story in segment three named Stingray. I can't wait to tell you that story. Right now, for the next couple of segments, I have a pastor. Joel Rissinger is an author. He's a pastor. Uh, He has a new book out called Things Your Pastor Would Love to Say But Can't. (laughs) I like that. That's a great story already in and of itself. Joel, welcome to my program. Thank you so much. It's a real blessing and honor to be with you and with your audience today. Too. Well, I am honored to present you to our listeners. And um, this this whole thing that we talked about before we started this interview, your background, your home area is upstate New York. And uh, yep, my right. goodness, uh, you knew about something that I knew about from my days when I was a weather guy. I was a TV weather reporter in Indiana, and one of the fellows that moved from us, he was in our sales department, and he went to Buffalo, and uh, it was in 1977, and he got there just in time for what was a rather historic blizzard. And you yes. knew about that. You you were around. You remember. Oh, yeah, I was there. I remember we were, um, I was in high school and we were out for two weeks, one week for the blizzard and then another week for a natural gas shortage that was a result of the blizzard. And yeah, I remember jumping off the roof into snowbanks, driving by my grandmother's house, couldn't even see the house from the road. We had to dig a tunnel to get her get her out and get her groceries and whatnot. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. And I tell people, they ask about where I grew up. I say, well, I come from a place where we measured snow in feet, not inches. You know, anything under a foot didn't count. That's much. right. So, now, when you're talking that way today, I think you're talking. Uh, when you said this, you're you're not just exaggerating. You're not saying something mm-hmm. just out of hyperbole. Uh, there were homes that literally disappeared because of the yep. snow level of that. I mean, that was an event for the century. Yeah, they actually ran out of places uh, to put the snow, which was funny because, you know, after you push so much up on the banks get so high that you, you can't go any higher. Um, and I've heard stories and I've had some pretty credible folks um, that I knew from from the city. I, I grew up in the country, but had a lot of friends in Buffalo say that they were even uh, pushing it out into Lake Erie and putting it on boxcars and letting trains run big boxcars full of snow out of the city. I mean, it's just insane, the amount of, uh, you know, precipitation. And it was just, but, you know, for, as a kid, it was fun. We dug tunnels and, you know, we just thought it was a big party at the time. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to, uh, you have to pivot and make with what you've got. And in that particular yep. instance, you had a lot of snow to deal with. Yeah, we did. Well, we I'm did. glad, yeah. uh, I'm glad we're down here in the Sunshine State. Uh, again, people that uh, don't have the Northern connection, they really can't relate to that kind of experience where you talk about having to rescue your grandmother by digging a tunnel 
to her front door and then get groceries through the snow. And another thing that I recall about that storm is it um, it, it didn't turn 70 the next day. That snow was with you for a while, wasn't it? That's right. It stayed put. Um, and they were rescuing folks and bringing food to them, you know, on snowmobiles all over the western part of the state. Uh, for a good couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah. Sadly, some folks died because um, people got buried in their cars and they would, um, you know, turn on the engine to get the heater running and some asphyxiated, mm-hmm. sadly. And mm-hmm. there were also some hit by snowplows because the snowplow plow would come along, couldn't see that that was a car, just looked like a snowbank. Oh, my gosh. Um, and some of that happened, sadly, too. But most of us were fine. Once we got home, we just put another log on the fire and uh, hunkered down. My father was out. He was a salesman, worked for an oil company, sold to farmers and highway departments, et cetera. He um, heard on the radio the storm hit Buffalo and started home to our place and got about, well, within about two miles or so of the house. And it was, he said it was like someone dropped a sheet over the car, you know, zero visibility, um, he found his way home by following the uh, shoulder, just where it was a little darker, a darker shade of white or kind of grayish. And he knew about where he was when things hit. So he just followed that along and slowly made it. took him a long time. My mother was so thrilled when he pulled, you know, walked in the oh, front door. Oh, absolutely. But My it goodness. Was, it, was a, it was a crazy time. But again, once you're home, hey, it's fine. Yeah. You know? You know, you hear the I'm phrase, cool. it's sometimes used in newscasts with a what's called a whiteout, and that's what that yeah. was. I mean, you really can't see well at all. And I know no. this morning we had fog here in Orlando, and I, <laughs> it doesn't compare to what you went through, let me tell you. It was it was crazy. Uh, Joel Rissinger is my guest, and he's a pastor. Uh, where are you located now, Joel? I'm just south of Hartford, Connecticut, although... Um, we travel a lot now in our, our ministry, so we're selling our home, and we're pretty much full-time RVers. Um, that is by design. We love to camp, but um, from a ministry perspective, we serve pastors, ministry leaders, staff members uh, all over, mostly on the East Coast. So for us to be able to go and boondock in a church parking lot to help out for a week or two at a time is a real advantage. So we, um, yeah, we're, we're from Connecticut, but, uh, soon to be from just about everywhere. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And you know, that is, that's kind of a a long held thing with a lot of, uh, traveling itinerant ministries where they would go Mm -hmm. and maybe in trailers and stay in a church Mm -hmm. parking lot. You don't hear that every day anymore. But uh, it's still being done, and you, you've done that. How did you get to this thing called ministry to begin with? Well, I um, my my parents, uh, you know, raised us in the church. Uh, we didn't. Um, I didn't like church when I was a kid. I was kind of rebellious. Uh, no, not kind of. I was very rebellious, um, and I, you know, didn't didn't want to go. And I'd always put up a fight and. About, I guess, age 15 or so, um, our church had a uh, basketball league, a youth basketball league, and it was quite elaborate, actually. There were tournaments, regional tournaments, even national tournaments. And um, I um, 
I got involved in that, and I really um, enjoyed it quite a bit. And um, when I initially started, it was kind of funny because I, <laughs> I didn't. I only went because, if I'm honest, I went because the uh, cheerleaders were very cute. Like they were, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of yeah. the, the church cheerleading team was was just beautiful. And I thought, well, at least I'll meet some cute girls. So I went. And what happened to me was. Um, the the folks that were so nice to me, you know, the the families, the coaches, the people around me, and I was shocked. I remember thinking, I don't get it. These people are nice, and I'm not. I'm a jerk. Why do they like me? Why are they so nice to me? And I remember getting down on my knees and saying, okay, God, if you're real, uh, show me. Something's going on here I can't explain. Maybe that's you. And uh, that was the turning point in my life. Um, I had a pastor there who worked with us who shortly after that asked me if I would share a verse from scripture as part of a youth conference report. Several of us had gone to this conference and I thought, really, you want me to do that? Are you sure? What's wrong? You know, I kind of thought there was something wrong with him. You know, maybe he was, uh, you know, starting to lose it or something. <laughs> so, but, I, but I did, I got up and I'll never forget this. I was standing in at the pulpit I can actually close my eyes now and see that scene because I remember speaking and thinking, wow, where did that come from? I mean, I think that's true, but, you know, almost like, you know, I I could feel God working through me. And um, it was both exciting and scary in a way. And it took a while. It wasn't like I immediately got saved after that or started, you know, pursuing ministry, but it was definitely one of those signposts in life where a couple of years later, when I went to Bible college, I had looked at that and thought, okay, I think I have a calling mm. to uh, to serve the Lord. And um, I, I certainly did. Um, have, I was in business for several years after Bible college and then went into full-time ministry when I was 30. Uh, so in 1992, I went to work for a church in Massachusetts and I've been in vocational ministry ever since. That is something. Now, I went in full-time in ministry the day before I turned 30. So that is, I I can relate exactly to that. And it's so meaningful uh, to be at that stage of life. I mean, you're older than a lot of kids who are are wanting Mm -hmm, to be in mm -hmm. ministry, and you've got a little bit of like a real-world experience, and I know that helped you in ministry. Yes, it did. That's right. I I think that was huge for me. And I, at the time, I was a little frustrated because I, I felt the call to ministry while I was in Bible college, and I wanted to go, but it, the door just wasn't open. And so, you know, I had this this business marketing and sales experience, IT, and some consulting stuff. And I was a little frustrated thinking, and I volunteered all that time, served, you know, and helped out kind of as a youth pastor on a volunteer basis. But I was frustrated that I wasn't working full time. But looking back, I agree with you 100%. It was good for me. It, it really helped me when I did end up as a pastor. I was able to empathize with what people were going through and some of their work challenges, et cetera. And and I'm thankful for that. You know, I think it is really encouraging to those that are listening to this that may have a heart for ministry, uh, that uh, it is really never too late to enter into the ministry that God's called. It's uh, that's up to Mm -hmm. him. He does that. And he did that for you. And here you are, you've got this experience now. Where did you get your first full-time ministry experience? So I was uh, hired and sent to serve in a church circuit of sorts in uh, Massachusetts and um, Connecticut, where I am now. 
there were three churches that this pastor was serving, and um, I came as an assistant pastor to him and later became associate. And um, after the first year or two, he pretty much just gave me the the responsibility for the church in Springfield, Massachusetts area. Hmm. And I was there for um, a couple years under his authority, and then he moved uh, to Arizona, and I took over. Um, at that time, we had changed it, realigned things. There weren't just two churches, but I served both of those as my first full-time lead pastor or senior pastor role. Um, so that was what, when I was about 32, 33, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I've been in Connecticut ever since I moved to where he was living just because it seemed more central. And, um, I stayed actually in the house he, he had rented. I rented the same house and then bought a house in the same town. And we've been in this home now for 20, 26 years now, just about Mm -hmm. maybe 27. So yeah, 30 years altogether, but I served more than one church during that time. I, served in that particular church for about seven years. And then uh, I served at uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Meriden. And then we planted a church uh, here in Newington in 2007. We launched in 2007 and have been at that church. We merged it with another and kind of reformed what we now call Lifeway Church in 2017. But it's the same church you know, what I, in essence, that I started in with an, an addition of a second congregation. And so uh, when I started doing the traveling ministry this last year, uh, I became pastor emeritus. I joke that I'm the old guy. They wheel out now and then, you know, there he is. Okay. <laughs> he helped start it. All right. Don't let him talk. Put him away. That's good. Um, so I, now I, you know, I still speak. I spoke last Sunday services, but I, I, I come in and visit and help, but I'm not on staff any any longer so that I can dedicate my time to Standing Stone Ministry and serving pastors, you know, wherever wherever the need is all around the country, actually even overseas. We do some work in Zambia and Namibia, Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Now tell the difference, because I know you've got your own ministry that bears your name, but then you yes. have standing stones. So tell me, tell us the difference in what you do with yep. both of those. So standing stone is focused on serving pastors and leaders um, and their families, missionaries too, and their families. And that is a broad statement, serving them, but it really is broad, meaning it's whatever the need is to try to help keep them active, keep them in the game, so to speak. We have so many pastors now, as you probably know, um, especially post-COVID, that have either quit or thinking about quitting or retiring early. You know, I called one denominational leader when I started uh, at Standing Stone, and I told him what I was going to be doing. And before I could even finish the sentence, he said, can you take some names? Um, He said, I have post-COVID, I have so many pastors quitting. I can't keep up with the visit requests. Can you please take some names and go see these guys? Um, And so we're doing our best to stem that tide, you know, and help wherever needed. And so we give a listening ear, we do some coaching, we cheerlead, we try to, we tell corny dad jokes, whatever's needed, we'll go, we'll (laughs) fill a pulpit, we'll do the workshops, but the goal is to keep those leaders um, going. My own ministry, Joel Rissinger Ministries, is um, a little broader in that um, I have several books I've published, and uh, we use those and some other materials and workshops 
to help folks and help churches. And and I would say maybe the main difference is that that ministry is mostly focused on uh, helping helping church members, Christians in general. And we do a lot with couples. My wife is a retired school psychologist, and she has a theology degree as well. So we work together to do a lot of marriage workshops, retreats, and couples counseling or coaching. So oh, um, Joel Rissinger Ministries kind of includes all the above, but is heavily focused on either the marriage side of things or just helping church members in general. We're going to hear about your book in the next segment. I want to go into that. It's fascinating title. Can't wait for that discussion. In the time we have remaining in this segment, tell us a little bit about what you learned as a church planner. Now, that's a phrase that has evolved. It used to be uh, people mm-hmm. would talk about pioneering a new church or starting a new church. But uh, a number of years ago, this concept of planting a church and sending out, and the, and we find there's a lot of people that did it that weren't successful. Others would go, and it would become wildly successful. What makes the yeah. difference in either of those things as one who has planted a church? Well, I think church planters, in as a, as a breed of, of ministry folk and pastors, are are a little bit unique. They're kind of the entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we get sometimes people will be critical of using business terminology to, to relate to the church and so forth. And, and I understand that, that the church is more than a business, but there is, you know, there are elements of church work and administration that are business oriented, you know, financial, for example, uh, finances and how they're managed. But, um, I think, you know, God is the God of all things that are good, and he can use those skills and wants to. And I think if we were to break down categories of leadership or types of leadership, we would have to say that church planners that are successful are the entrepreneurs. They tend to be a little more independent. They tend to be very driven. They have to wear multiple hats. They're not able to say, well, I'm, you know, I just preach and, you know, do counseling or whatever. Um, They have to initially at least, you know, pay the bills and arrange things and set up and tear down chairs and equipment. They have to be all things to all men that by all Mm -hmm. means they might save some, as the Apostle Paul would put it. And, And so I think that takes a certain energy and um, a little bit of the Paulian hard-headedness, I call it, uh, <laughs> where they don't they don't take an over an answer, they don't give up easily because there's going to be spiritually and physically multiple challenges in their path if they set out to plant a church, you know. And so, because the enemy's not a fool, he understands that uh, when you plant a new church, there will be a rapid period of salvation, of so new people that wouldn't come maybe to an established church, wouldn't even darken the door, but they'll maybe come check out this new thing, and many of them will be saved, and Satan knows that, so he will go after these guys, mm. and they've got to have a tough, you know, um, mindset to, to go forward. Yeah, let's pick up on that in just a moment. I'm up against a break, and we'll carry this on in our next segment. My guest is Joel Rissinger. He is a planter of churches, and he's a uh, an encourager of churches, a former pastor of a church up in the Northeast. We'll be back with Joel in just a second. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? 
Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Back again now on the line with me is Joel Rissinger. He is a pastor and author uh, he travels around to many different churches now, although he has experience both as a church planter, as we were talking about at the end of segment one, as well as being a senior pastor in a more traditional role. Let's pick back up again on that discussion. I've got just, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned this whole thing about the entrepreneurship aspect that really is helpful to somebody. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the just the courage and I think the long suffering that a, a church planner has to have as part of their makeup. They can't be easily swayed or discouraged if they're going to be a mm-hmm. successful church planner. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, so I was coordinating church planting efforts for Converge Northeast Baptist, the Baptist General Conference in the Northeast, and I had never planted. And I remember saying, guys, really, you shouldn't have me in this job. I've never done it. Oh, no, you understand. You've studied it. Yeah, but that's not the same. And so that, believe it or not, one of the <laughs> motivations for me to plant my own church was to be better at helping other church planters. But I learned real fast that, yeah, you're going to come under um, attack. You're going to have to have some some chutzpah. You know, you gotta you got to really depend on God's strength and the, you know, the power of the resurrection within us. You know, I had... I had leaders in the community and other pastors in the community try to discourage me, try to tell me, you know, you should go somewhere else and do this. You know, you shouldn't do that here. And um, we had spiritual attack and oppression. But through that, um, it drew us closer. I think it made us more um, assured of God's call and sense of his his presence and what we were doing. We had fasted for 40 days, uh, followed Bill Bright's long-term fasting, wow. um, teaching and writing um, with crew. Uh, I remember when he did that. Yeah, he was one yeah. of the few people I knew that had done that. Yeah, we did it twice, Karen and I. The first time we prayed over all the streets and the neighborhoods in our in our little town of 30,000 here. And we really believe that that made the difference and it helped us to endure. So yeah, you have to have that, that assurance, that strength, that confidence, and to keep going because you will meet opposition both uh, in the human realm and in the spiritual realm. Um, but God was good to us, and we saw many, many people get saved. We started with a, a bunch of teenagers, which was funny. We didn't plan that, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. You're not going to read this in any church planting book. Um, <laughs> Elmer Towns used to have us at te- teach or speak at his class once a year. They'd have this oh, really? uh, church planting emphasis week at Liberty, and I would go down and share. And uh, 
you know, I would laugh about that, that what we're doing is not something we'd recommend that you start with 60 teenagers and 15 adults in your, you know, your launch team. That's not necessarily the way to do it, but it's what happened. We had this group of kids that just got to be on fire for Jesus and um, they were passionate and it really helped us to their energy and strength and enthusiasm. And unfortunately, not their money because they didn't have any. Yeah, that's um, right. That, that, that's one of the downsides. That's why they don't recommend it. I had a, I was joking at the time, I should have had a business card that said, Pastor Joel Rissinger, AFAB, anything for a buck, because um, I was, I was driving school bus, I was, you know, painting houses, anything to, to pay the bills, because these kids didn't have the, the money, but we, uh, God carried us through, and um the church today, of course, we've merged with another plant whose pastor I had coached a little and got to be friends with. Uh, and today we're probably around 300 on average um, between the different services and, mm-hmm. and our folks online. And so God has been good. And that's not a big church um, in many parts of the country, but in Connecticut or New England, it's um, it, it's considered a large church. I would imagine so. There's so many up there that are are much smaller than that. So that that's mm-hmm. really a, a great thing. And the things that God leads us through are always helpful. I learned years ago that as a pastor, not only was it helpful to me, the things that Cindy and I would be walking through, uh, we recognize that a lot of our own experiences were not only be, they're not only to teach us the lesson, they're to help other people as well. There's this flow over and uh, kind of flow through effect that God's brought you through. So grateful that he's given you the heart that he has. And you've written this book, this book that's out right now, you mentioned several of your books. I know um, information on them can be found at Joel Rissinger, that's R-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-R, joelrissinger.com. Now, the book that uh, we're talking about is Things Your Pastor Would Love to Say But Can't. First of all, give us the idea that uh, hit your brain first about writing this one. Well, I used to tease my church for for several years that you know when I you guys better be nice to me because when I retire I'm going to write a book about all the things I wanted to say but I held back you know and they'd laugh <laughs> and um, about I don't know a year ago now maybe a little more I realized that we were moving in this direction of serving at Standing Stone serving pastors and leaders as our primary focus and. I thought, you know what? I'm going to write that book. I'm going to write it for two reasons. I really had two things in mind. One was to say to pastors, hey, you're not alone, that that there are others of us out there that understand some of the pain, some of the challenges, some of the, the difficulties that you go through in your family, too. There's chapters in there about you know, the pastor's wife and about his kids. And, and so we wanted to give that sort of cathartic thing for me and a little empathetic um, outreach to leaders. But the other motivation, I think perhaps the bigger thing, was we were hoping to reach as many Christians as possible uh, and share with them sort of an inside look at their pastor's heart. Things that, again, he might not say because he doesn't want to be self-serving, because he doesn't want to be complaining, because he doesn't, you know, he feels it and takes seriously his responsibility to care for the flock, not to be a burden to the flock. And so there are a lot of things that pastors go through that they're never going to mention, certainly not from the pulpit. And we thought, I thought, well, maybe, maybe we can do it for them. 
Um, and one of the most heartwarming things in this is that we've had some folks who've read the book. I remember one woman in particular. She read the book. She said, I was only going to read a you know, chapter or a couple of paragraphs, but I couldn't stop. I read the whole thing in one sitting, couldn't wow. put it down. She said, and I called my brother, who's a pastor, and I said, I just want you to know I'm sorry. And, of course, he said, you're, you're sorry. You're sorry for what? What do you mean? And she said, well, I've never appreciated you like I should. I've never backed you like I should. And I haven't been praying for you regularly, but that stops now. That changes today. I'm going to pray for you every day. I'm going to try to encourage you because I just never realized all the stuff that you go through. And I just want you to know I got your back mm. kind of thing. And I thought, well, if that's the only person that reads it and acts like that, then it was worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm good. That's great. <laughs> but that's certainly our goal. Now, you know, you mentioned the need for courage, the need for longevity and of heart uh, in a church planner, but that's also true in the, in the life of any pastor, whether they're a senior sure. pastor or an associate pastor. As you've written this book and prayed about all of this and all your travels at different churches, what do you think is the most common problem that, that a lot of pastors, let's say, have and maybe they don't know they have? Ooh, that's a good question. So I think, and, and this may be more um, what's situational. I'll start with this because it's so current. But post-COVID in particular, we've seen so many people leave the church. Now, initially, many churches shut down during the, mm -hmm, the right. pandemic. And then, you know, would reopen or just have... Um, you know, live streaming uh, online services or some combination thereof. But now most churches are open and functioning pretty much like they were prior to you know, the COVID crisis. And yet many, and I've heard this so many times, and we've we serve some churches in northern Ontario, through western New York, much of New England, all the way down to the east coast of Florida. And I've heard this over and over and over in all those places, that many of those folks that left aren't coming back. They, mm -hmm. they haven't returned. Now, some may be watching at home still online. But quite frankly, when you're out of sight, out of, you're out of mind. And what often happens or has happened is that those folks watching at home, you know, they, they don't necessarily give because they're not present and, and they don't get as involved in other things. And, and then they sleep in some mornings and they don't watch and eventually they kind of drift off. And the, the good news is that a number of churches have seen people come, new people come in, and, and the numbers have kind of gone back to post-COVID normalcy. But the bad news is that often around 50% of those folks now in the church are new. And I say that's bad news. I mean, it's great that they're coming and hopefully getting saved and built up in the Lord. But they aren't always tithing and giving, so the church budgets have been affected. And the pastor's heart is to worry and feel um, pain about those that have just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I have had more than one pastor say to me, is it me? You know, did I do something? Should I have done something different? Should I have done more? You know, did, should we stop the online services? What 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 do I do? And maybe I've not, I've had pastors question their calling. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe I misheard God. And so that sense of hurt and self-deprecation that comes when people leave the church, and that's been true long before COVID, 
but it's very intense now mm-hmm. because of those that have left and, and disappeared post-COVID. And I feel like that discouragement and that sense of failure is – and, you know, to be fair, part of that's because we put too much emphasis in the church growth movement, um, too much emphasis on that, on numbers, and how many do you have in your church, and how what did you have last year, and you know, what's going on, and how big is your budget? And we, you know, the church is is to be about mo- a lot more than that. You know, some of the most powerful pastors I know, strong, loving, uh, virtuous men of God are in tiny little churches. So that that whole numbers focus is part of what makes it so hard when the numbers go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like we failed. I tell people because it's true. First church I pastored. Um, it had a lot of errors, from doctrinal errors that had to be corrected when I became lead pastor. And I have the dubious honor of preaching them down uh, from 300 to 150. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah, put, the gift of shrinking a church, right? Right up top. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think that brokenness of, oh, my gosh, is it me? Did I do something wrong? These people left. That is probably the biggest issue and one of the biggest reasons pastors quit or you know, retire early. Now we hear a lot about the phrase pastor burnout. Would uh, that be kind of the impact that that's brought or is there, are there other reasons for burnout? Yeah. You know, that's one reason. Another reason is that many times pastors are trying so hard to fulfill the great commission and they want to see new people come and be built up and their church has settled in. um, And this happens not just with, Older churches that have more, maybe more traditional worship or whatever, this happens across the board. I don't care. New, old, contemporary worship, it doesn't matter. Um, people get settled into a routine, um, and pastor comes along and says, hey, I think we should do this instead, or we should try this, because I think we can reach some more people in our community that we're not reaching, and they need Jesus. And, you know, people don't automatically just say, yeah, hey, great idea, pastor, we're with you. Um, change is often met with resistance and mm-hmm. anger. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when a pastor has really poured his heart into something and he's having battles, not just with the world or with the community leaders or with, you know, lost folks who might be opposed to Christian faith, he's fi- finding his major battles in the church. That wears them down even faster. Mm-hmm. The expectation is that those people in the church would be behind, you know, fulfilling the Great Commission, reaching the lost, building them up. And when they're not, it's discouraging and disappointing and just tiring, uh, where pastors just feel like, oh, my gosh, I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, most pastors have had, and this is sad, and my book talks about this, they've had people turn on not just them, but their family. Mm. You know, where people will go after their wives or make up. I had a guy make up stories about my son one time when he was about 12. And, um, you know, my son's still mad about church and God issues to this day. He's 36. Um, partly, I think, because of those events where he was falsely accused. And, and it was all an attempt just to get back at me because I was making changes this person didn't like. And, so when pastors go through that, um, that internal turmoil in the body, I think it has a, a bigger effect. It does more damage than just the normal wear, to, wear and tear of trying to start mm-hmm. something new or reach out to the lost uh, you know, and as part of their evangelistic call. 
Um, so we come and try to, you know, first of all, let them know they're not alone and that, uh, you know, God is still on his throne. He hasn't changed his mind about their calling and that we're going to do what we can to hold up their arms and keep moving forward with them. There's a lot of talk today, Joel, about revival. We've heard what's yeah. going on and Will Moore, and I, I can't think of a single pastor that doesn't want to see revival happen in their own church and a sense Amen. of getting on fire for God and, and people coming to the altars to get saved. Uh, that is something I think every pastor should and probably does pray for. What are you seeing happen from where you stand uh, in that subject? You know, I, I'm very excited to see the the number of young people. And, you know, I mentioned like the, the 50% or so of of current church attendance in many of the churches I, I've worked with that's now new folks that have come in. And those new folks are often um, people under 40, uh, which is another interesting and refreshing thing. And I think what's interesting about Asbury and uh, revival that seems to be spreading, you know, far beyond that, um, is that it's it's young people, it's it's college students, mm-hmm. it's people in their thirties, and I think that's good. Um, I wish my generation were a little more passionate at times, and you know, revived. <laughs> but hey, you know, I, all the way back at the time, I was talking to someone about this the other day. You know, you look at what happened with ancient Israel. Um, there was a whole generation that didn't enter the promised land. It was the next generation mm-hmm. that came in That's and right. fought the battles with Jericho and, and and took the land. And so I suspect maybe we're seeing some of that along with uh, along with this move of the Spirit. And I, I believe it is a legitimate move of the Spirit. When people are repenting, crying out to God in worship, um, bringing friends to do the same, and people are being saved— I've heard people disparage, you know, well, it's emotionalism. They said the same thing uh, during Jonathan Edwards' time. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of public record. Well, it's emotional. I don't know. Uh, We need to get over that and recognize when the Spirit moves, you're going to be emotionally affected too. And I believe it's happening. The key is is humility. The key is repentance. Uh, The key is being in a worshipful mindset prayerful mindset, especially. Mm. And if we can do that and see that attitude spread, then the revival is going to spread too. And I can't wait to have you back on my program, Joel. This is so good. Joel Rissinger is available at www.joelrissinger.com. And that is R-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-R. The name of his book is Things Your Pastor Would Love to Say But Can't. And I've enjoyed having you on, Joel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it, too. It's wonderful. Um, I would throw in one quick thing, and that is they can find the book more at joelrissingerministries.org. Uh, the other site works, too, but they might have a little more time, tricky time finding the book. So thank you so much for letting me on and, and sharing together. Appreciate your ministry, too, my friend. All right. God bless you, and we'll have to have you back on the program. In a moment, friends, stay tuned for an interview with a race car driver that I think you're going to enjoy right here on The Shepherd. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando, offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, 
Call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Back again now for segment three on today's program, and this is going to be fun, my friends. I've got a 21-year-old race car driver whose actual name is Stingray. His last name is Rob. Stingray Rob, welcome to my program. This is so cool. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Mike. You know, this is, uh, now you're up in my, uh, kind of my home area. I'm originally from Indiana, Evansville, Indiana, which is in the southern part. Indy was about three and a half, four hours away uh, growing up. You're up there. Uh, first of all, let's go back and let's talk from the beginning. You had it, uh, obviously, from the beginning of your name, uh, there's been an association with cars, right? So give us the story. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, the, the story kind of begins with my name. And that's because my parents were big Corvette fans. And so they decided to name me after the Stingray Corvette. Now, that's not the whole story. The whole story is that my dad's side of the family's heritage is from Stirlingshire, Scotland. So Sting is actually short for Sterling. And then both of my grandpas had Ray in their name. And so we took that big uh, collaboration of all that info and put it together and got Stingray out of it. Um, <laughs> but the the most influential part is the Corvette one. And the reason for that is because I grew up at Corvette club meetings, drag races, autocross events. Um, so that's all I knew. You know, I, I wanted to be a race car driver from the time I could talk pretty much. You know, I used to sit in the back seat of my mom's car as she was driving me to and from school or whatever else. And I could say, faster, faster, faster. And so they, they knew from an early age that that's what I wanted to do. So for uh, my fifth birthday, I asked for a go-kart. And sure enough, I got one. Um, and when I saw it sitting there in the garage, I told everyone, I've waited my whole life to be five. <laughs> Typical five-year-old. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, yeah. So well, that was kind of the beginning of our journey. And then from there, we started traveling around the country. I've been to Florida a few times. Um, won a few championships there. And uh, yeah, definitely a long journey. I've been to, um, by the time I was 14, I'd been to Spain, Portugal, England, Belgium, France, Italy. Um, And so all all of that was because of my go-karting career. And then in 2016, I I decided to make sort of a transition um, from go-kart to car. And so that was kind of the beginning of my current path, which now I'm in IndyCar. And so to get to this point, I, I had, had to go through a few different stages. And part of that was figuring out what direction I wanted to go. Um, and the best way I can describe it was racing. It's like shattered glass. There's no direct path to the top because there's so many different ways that you can go, so many different series you can race in. And so for me, I decided I wanted to try dirt track racing. I went the NASCAR route for a little bit. I did a little bit of open wheel racing, which is what I'm doing now. I did go-karts over in Europe. and I did. Um, some sports car racing as well. And so I decided that open wheel was the direction I wanted to go because of the feeling that the car gave me. The downforce that the wings create, coupled with the horsepower that the cars create, um, was just so similar to what I felt in the go-kart that that's what I wanted to continue to do. The the high G-forces, the lateral loading of the car, all those things were, were factors that made me feel at home in a Formula car versus something bigger or heavier uh, like a NASCAR or a sports car. Right. Now, of course, in Florida, we are not that far here in Orlando from Daytona Beach, which much more known for NASCAR, uh, Formula uh, cars, uh, having been in Indiana and those uh, that Indianapolis 500, growing up and watching these Formula car racers, those things are amazing. And you mentioned G-forces. When you get behind the wheel of one of those things, I can only imagine, never done it, 
Uh, I, I don't think I would probably be able to handle it if I tried. But you, I, I, you're 21 years old. You've not only done this, but if I if I heard you right, you said 2016 you transitioned to cars from go karts. But now knowing your age of 21, uh, what what age were you when you started racing automobiles? I was probably 13 by the time I started driving cars for the first time. Um, 2015 was the first year I ever stepped foot into a race car versus a go-kart. Oh, my and goodness. And so uh, 2016, I was 14 years old, and that was the first time I raced in the championship. And, and you, <laughs> you're you driving when you wouldn't even be legally uh, able to do that on the roads. That's what's amazing. <laughs> that That is true. That is true. My mom still had to drop me off at high school um, that year, and I uh, had to be picked up from basketball practice and all the various other activities I did outside of racing. Uh, there are so many things, uh, Stingray, that I've I've just got to ask. Number one, you mentioned growing up at, and you know seeing all of these uh, car races and things like that. Was your dad a big into it, or was he just a Corvette lover, or what? What happened there? Yeah, I think it was both of my parents. Um, my dad obviously played a bigger influence in that um, with his passion for cars, and he was a bit of a drag racer. He has a 1966 Stingray Corvette um, that he's had longer than I've been around. And uh, he turns that thing into a beast of a drag car, and it looks stock. And so for him, uh, that was his passion. And so he's a, a grocery man. He grew up in the grocery business, and that's what I've known as well. My parents owned a little tiny grocery store in or right on the Idaho and Oregon border. Um, and so for me, the, the only thing outside the grocery store that I got to experience was the, their passion, and that was Corvette. I think every young man in America at one point or another wanted to have a Corvette. I certainly did. And they are beautiful cars. I, this is so, uh, I can't imagine what it was like for you growing up with the name Stingray. What did your friends in school think about that? <laughs> it's actually funny. Um, you know, I've got plenty of nicknames. And so all of my stepbrothers have nicknames for me. My best friend in high school had a nickname for me, but um, I was actually homeschooled by a lady from our church until about seventh grade. Um, and so I got to play sports and stuff in the public school system, but um, everyone knew me as Stingray. And so they didn't think much of it, I don't think. That was just what my name was, and they, they rolled with it and moved on. But I think looking back now, all of them would put a bigger question mark next to my name had they realized how crazy it was at that point. Yeah, it was certainly different and hearing that. But I mean, you know, it is really impactful on a young person to grow up with uh, a parent or two, with, in your case, like you said, both mom and dad, having passion for all of this. Uh, so it's not that uncommon for the young person to grow up immersed in that love and passion. It's just not every day that you find a young man, 21 years old, who's already uh, really has the pedigree of a resume of winning at uh, something that is incredibly dangerous on one hand, but exhilarating on another. I can't imagine what it's like. What's the fastest you've ever driven one of these cars? The fastest I've ever driven was actually just a couple of weeks ago. We went to Texas Motor Speedway for a practice around there, and we were doing speeds upwards of 220 miles an hour. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> now, my son lives real close to the Texas Motor Speedway right there on, uh, what is it, 116, I believe, right there in uh, the north near Justin, Texas. So that's where that is. And uh, I, that track is immense. I mean, that whole piece of property is huge. So I, I just can't yeah. imagine the thrill. You're on a slanted track. So uh, th that had to be different the first time you ever raced a car in one of those, right? That is correct, yeah. 
Texas Motor Speedway is known for its high banking, fast turns. Um, and so what that does to a driver in the car is it creates vertical loading, vertical mm-hmm. Gs, um, compression into the seat versus lateral Gs. And that's not to say you don't feel lateral Gs, but um, instead of pulling four and a half Gs sideways and maybe irregular one G vertically, we're doing two and a half Gs vertically and four Gs sideways. So um, for the driver, it creates more load and compression on the body. And that's why we have to train physically is because we got to be able to sustain that for two to three hours of racing time. And that's a lot of work. And so I know that in order for you to be in fit shape for this kind of racing, I, I'm sure it, a lot of people who aren't af- aware of what we're talking about here, but when they talk about G-forces in your body, when you're just sitting there in that car, it's not like you are just on the Sunday drive. You're, you're feeling the, the pressure of gravity on you. You're, you're feeling it coming and going, so to speak, like you said, vertical as well as lateral. I mean, I can't even imagine the workout. You've got to be exhausted at the end of a race, right? That's true. Yeah. Depending on the race, um, our heart rate is anywhere from 150 to 180 beats per minute for that two and a half to three hours. And in the summertime, it gets hot in the race car. You know, we don't have air conditioning. So that, that means that it's usually around 120 degrees on the hot days inside the cockpit. And we don't have power steering either. And so if you were to take power steering out of a street car, it would be hard to turn, let alone at 200 miles an hour with yeah. super high downforce open wheel car like we're driving. Yeah. And not only that, but you've got all these other cars around you. I mean, it's you're driving at breakneck speeds, literally. And, you know, I, I know sometimes <laughs> you get into the draft of a car in front of you. The little bit I know about racing, I know that when you're right immediately behind someone, you can actually have a little bit of uh, less resistance against the car because of the fact that they're kind of breaking uh, all of that uh, in front of you. But then when you make a pass, that's got to be really crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know a lot about racing, it sounds like. I like this. What? But you're you're 100% correct. That, that drafting can help you speed up in the straightaway because it reduces the amount of drag that the car has with the air around it. Um, but through the turns, it does the same thing but it's a negative effect because right. we actually gain grip from the downforce, the drag that the car creates through the turn. And so when you're following another driver, it's actually much harder to follow closely than it is to lead um, because of that downforce that is disrupted as the following car around the turns. Oh, my goodness. And I can't imagine it. I mean, you've got centrifugal force working with you and maybe even against you in some of these things when you're driving at that kind of speed. I've never done it, and I didn't. Uh, thank you for saying that. I wouldn't have known that I know anything about it other than what I've heard, but I, I'm, uh, I'm always fascinated by watching these guys. I did go to a couple of car races in my life, and I, I just shake my head and go, I can't imagine what it's like being in that thing right now. But being from Indiana, who isn't a, a bit of a race car fan because of the Indy 500? Now, in the time that's remaining, there's a faith component to what you're doing. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, um, I grew up homeschooled by a lady that went to our church. And so she was, along with my family, instilling in me a faith that helped me um, you know, build something and and something that I could lean on later on in my life. And that has helped me through my racing career. You know, it's something that I think is very important to uh, not only lean on, but also be outspoken about. And so I think that God's given me this platform um, of where I'm at now in IndyCar to reach people that may not hear the message. You know, motorsports is not the most well known for being um, full, uh, a full paddock of believers, but I think that that's changing. You know, we're living in a country now where um, truth 
is relative, it seems like. And that, oh, to me, that's yeah. not the case. You know, truth is um, what God says is true. And so I think that we're seeing a Jesus revolution across the country. You know, we see the Asbury College revival, amongst other revivals in different locations across the world. But um, it's just cool to see, and I feel like I'm pretty pretty blessed to be a part of that as well, at least speaking into it in some way or another. So my goal is to um, find partnership with brands and corporations and uh, companies that want to share that same value, to share that same message in some way or another. So we're looking for companies that can uh, join the ride with us right now on the on the IndyCar. Uh, but, you know, I want to be a steward of my gift as best as I can, reaching those that can't be reached, or at least um, pointing the glory back to God, whether that's in success or failure. You know, my, my identity is not tied to the results on the racetrack. And it has to be tied to something much more than that. For me, that's Jesus Christ. How exciting to hear a young man, 21 years old, on the IndyCar uh, circuit, really aiming for the Indianapolis 500. Are, are you, is there uh, any path that you have on that right now? Yeah. So we're, we're looking um, to race April 2nd at Texas Motor Speedway. That's here coming up this next weekend. Um, and then if you guys want to follow along, for anyone that wants to either uh, join the ride with me. You can visit my website at www.stingwayrob.com. And then Rob is spelled with two Bs, R-O-B-B. Um, and then also I'm on all social medias at Stingray Rob. Twitter's a little different. It's at Sting underscore Ray underscore Rob. And if you want to watch the races, anyone can watch on the NBC Sports channel or on the NBC Sports broadcasting app, Peacock TV. That is so cool. You know, I just have a feeling that what God has got for you, Stingray, it's going to be something that it's not only going to revive interest in car racing and Formula One racing, uh, as you're doing right now, but also just the fact that you're such a strong spokesperson for the Lord. I'm excited and I'm a new fan, my friend. I'm going to be watching what's going on with you. And I can't wait to have you back on my program where we can spend more time. There are dozens of questions I have for you, which we'll have to wait again for that time to come. But uh, your faith, your love for God, uh, the obvious gifting that God has given you, it's, it's unusual. And I can't wait to hear more about it. So thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Mike. Can't wait to talk soon. All right, and give us that address one more time of how people can find out more about Stingray Rob. That's R-O-B-B with two Bs. Yeah, my website is www.stingrayrob.com. And if you want to follow on social medias, at Stingray Rob. Twitter is at Sting underscore Ray underscore Rob. Oh, it's great. All right, I'll be watching for the reports from Texas. Thanks, man. All right, Mike. Thank you. And that's all the time for today. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time on Afternoons with Mike. 